This is the Bluegrass Beat Podcast. News, training, and first-hand accounts from Kentucky's leading law enforcement professionals and instructors. And here's your host, Quitley King-Smith. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bluegrass Beat. I'm Critley King-Smith. Today, we are diving into the topic of situational leadership, how to inspire and direct employees to maximum effectiveness based on their individual task, personalities, confidence levels, and motivators. The Situational Leadership Theory was created in 1969 by Ken Blanchard and Paul Harrisey at the Center for Leadership Studies and has been adapted for law enforcement and taught at the Kentucky Department of Criminal Justice Training since 1998. Joining me to discuss how agency heads can utilize this important leadership model is one of DOCJT's current longest-serving instructors, most notably associated with the Academy of Police Supervision course, Ed Lincolnfelter. First and foremost, I also want to say uh, thank you for having me. But um, the first place I think we need to start with is how do we define what leadership is? And lots of people will give really lengthy statements about what leadership is, which really kind of evolves into, you know, hey, their leadership philosophy. But if you boil down what leadership is, it really only comes back to one word, and that word is influence. That's it. That's all leadership is, is influence. And so when we look at that, we have to define then what is a leader. And so it's a not a hard thing to do, but any person that attempts to use any amount of influence is a leader. So what it does not say is, is that a leader holds a specific position. So that's where we kind of want to start with, with situational leadership, because it all goes back to a person's sphere of influence. So you're basically saying that it doesn't have to be a chief or a sheriff. It could be someone even at the patrol level that could find themselves in a leadership position. Correct. Probably the best example that I can give you is a field training officer. You know, for the most part, field training officers, they don't hold a year-round, day-to-day leadership position unless they are field training a, say, recruit, maybe a lateral transfer or whatever it may be. So at that point, you know, they're attempting to influence this person's behavior. And, you know, once that rotation, so to speak, is done, guess what? You know, they go back to the field. So you don't have to be in a leadership position in order to be a person of influence. Anybody attempts to use influence as being a leader. So I always want to really kind of start off with, you know, the how situational leadership is applied in, in law enforcement right there. And looking at the model in, in particular. So you're going to hear me use situational leadership, sit lead in the model, and it's all one thing. So years ago, we started using situational leadership, as you referenced, in 1998. And that was in the Criminal Justice Executive Development Course, CJED. A little bit before my time, but that's where how situational leadership kind of came to us. And then eventually we thought the best place to put it really was in the Academy of Police Supervision because there's a critical structure in every organization where the first line supervisor must be an active component in making sure that tasks are done for the agency and that the officer or deputy, whoever is your attempt and influence, get, is getting things done. So that kind of goes back to the effect of this model. So the next thing I kind of want to jump over into is, you know, we take the word leadership and add the word effective leadership. So when we think about what effective leadership is, this really speaks to the heart to me what situational leadership does differently than other models. 
we'll go through the steps a little bit later, but let me jump into what effective leadership is. It's simply adapting a style to meet the performance needs of those being influenced. Think about most traditional models of leadership. People kind of associate that with command and control style leadership. You do what I say. But what situational leadership does, it flips kind of the script on that, whereas the leader has to evaluate what is it that they want the person to do and meets the performance needs of that person in order to make that job done more efficiently. That's really what situational leadership does. It's not go do X. It's go do task X with this is how you can become better at doing task X. And it's not sometimes a, you know, one second fix. It may be a a multi interpersonal event, if you will, for a lack of better terms. And Ed, can you go back and explain why situational leadership is so effective for law enforcement specifically? It's simple, um, but yet complex. The first thing that we want to do as leaders is, what is it I want this person to do? What is the specific task in using the terms from situational leadership? So I have to know what that task is. What if the leader does not know what the task is completely? People say, hey, I I want you to go do this. Well, lots of times people will dump that task on people because they don't know what that is. You know, they're hoping that person will kind of fake it till they make it to get through it. That's not going to be a real effective way of evaluating a person's performance if you yourself as the leader don't know what that task is. So I, I explain this to everybody. You cannot know everything. You don't know everything. So why are we setting people up for failure by not figuring out or not knowing what the entire task is and what the same picture of performance is between leader and led. Now that goes into another area of situational leadership as we call this concept of mindshare. And what mindshare simply means is that the leader and the follower are simply on the same page when it comes to performance. So that means there is a clear picture between what's expected and what the performance of the person being influenced in order to complete the task. Now that sounds, I, I'll hate to say a lot of like leadership speak, but that's the truth. And So that's where we have to first kind of go back is does the leader know what the task completion is first and foremost before we even get to asking somebody to perform this task. So let's go to the the first variable for, you know, what is identifying the specific task, okay? That's that's the place we have to know. So in going back to what that concept of mindshare is, sometimes we have to break the task down into the, the smallest possible, you know, piece of the performance. So if I said, you know, hey, Go change a tire. Where would you start if you didn't know? Where would you start? You can start in the wrong spot because you don't know. So sometimes if you don't know, the first place you'd have to start is probably, you know, open up your trunk. So what I say is we, we kind of joke. Sometimes you got to break it down Barney style for people, you know, because they just don't know. The reason why this is so effective for law enforcement, there's so many small things as far as, you know, as a skill, right? A skill to perform a skill that you have to know in order to be successful for it. So if you break it down small for people, they they eventually get all the pieces and put it all, all together. But that's one place we have to start is, you know, where do I have to break it down for people um, 
at the smallest level first before in order for them to understand it before they can move on that's the other part of this about what makes situational leadership so effective is you're not going to let that person move on to fail again you know that's where some people find this aha moment in situational leadership they realize that you know i have inadvertently been setting people up for failure thinking i'm setting them up for success but not clearly explaining what it is that task is for me to say hey you did good enough, let's move on. One thing I found fascinating when reviewing the program's materials was that situational leadership seems very focused on meeting employees where they are and making them the best they can be. Within situational leadership, there are four employee levels of readiness and four styles of leadership. Ed, can you break those down and tell us how these levels and styles match up with each other? I'm going to try to be as brief as possible because I know we are going to go through each one of these you know, with a little bit more depth a little bit later on. But the first thing that we want to look at is that we kind of say that you, in using the model and situational leadership that we apply the four steps of situational leadership. Step one is a, simply to identify the specific task. We as leaders have to know all the things that make up a specific task in order for us to have somebody be successful at completing that task. That's part of the developmental model of using situational leadership because really what we want everybody to be is autonomous, masterful, and purposeful for that task, whatever it may be from, say, something as complex as you know, entering in a room in a, you know, in a tactical manner to completion of reports. You know, the second step in using situational leadership is assessing current performance readiness. And, you know, to me, it's the most critical as far as in officer leader involvement. And I say leader, a follower, officer, um, leader. We'll use those terms interchangeably throughout the podcast. Once we identify the specific tasks, assess current performance readiness, now comes the part where we the, we, the leader, have to match and communicate the leader's response. So that's really step three is match and communicate the leader's response. And the reason why I want to just go into a little bit of depth on this here is, uh, as we like to say, styles are styles. But you have to understand what the styles are. So sometimes I need to tell somebody how to perform a task or how to do a specific task. And, you know, that's kind of, it's mix, it's a mix between what we say task and relationship. How much task behavior, the who, the what, the when, the how, and how much relationship behavior, how much what we say giving social-emotional support. If you're fairly new at a task, I don't have to kind of cheerlead you on to do the task. That's what we say sometimes is rewarding bad behavior. We need to make sure that the people understand those small things, get small successes in order to get into the, what we say is the next style of leadership, which is a selling style. Some people sometimes get this, this confused when we say selling, okay? So really what it is, it's a coaching style. So if you think back, if you've ever had a coach in your life, the way that that coach speaks to you in the way to get you to perform, say, on, in the, on an athletic field or on a court or what have you, you know, he's or she is using what we say a high task. They're telling you what to do, but they're also cheerleading you on. That's a lot of what we say a social emotional support, a lot of two way communication mm -hmm. versus in when we're telling somebody to do it, it's not going to be so much two way communications. Even though there is some two way communication, it's not in the same sense. And once that person moves on to the next style, which is a participative style of leadership, 
you know, what happens is that we, the leader, are actively involved in the, using style one and style two. But style three and style four, the leader's not so much involved because that person has developed enough where we are pulling ourselves back. But we're there. We're not going to abandon them. We're going to give them, you know, the encouragement that they uh, that they need. It sounds like you're moving them into a place where it's a trust relationship between the employee and the leader and also into more independence. Absolutely. That's what our goal is, is to get a person, you know, completely autonomous for a task. And, and in style three, you, in style three, we call it a participative type of style. You're encouraging them. But the one thing that we don't want to do is tell them how to do the job. If they are there, we don't need to tell them how to do a job they already know. We just They just need to know that we're there to encourage them to take some risk. You know, go solo. That's one of the things that, you know, in speaking particularly to our audience, I could say this, um, that most peace officers, I don't know about the other part of the audience, but I can speak to our peace officers in this. The first time you ever took a call by yourself, the first time you made a traffic stop, you always had somebody there with you that you could ask, but... You know, you're a little insecure. So sometimes, you know, this is where the greatest amount of risk taking on the individual and the leader is. That's what makes, you know, style three, you know, uh, not difficult, but uh, very hard on the leader and the lead because the leader wants to step in to make sure that you do it right. And the, the person that is being influenced needs to know that, hey, that you have trust in me, as you really described very well. So in style four, when the leader is, you know, we, we say that is low task, low relationship. And the reason why we said that is that this person can do the job. All we need to do is honestly just monitor the person. It be say, hey, uh, currently go do X. I need you to do X. And whatever task X is, you just go do it. The leader's response is a delegated style. It's hard to figure out new ways to say the word delegated, but that's pretty much what it is. And remember, the goal is to make a person autonomous, masterful, and purposeful for what they do. But I just want to quickly run through, you know, before we get into the other parts of the model, just to kind of um, kind of lay out, you know, how we use situational leadership in those four steps. And just a quick review, you know, first thing we want to do is to identify the specific task. The second thing we want to do is assess their current performance readiness. The third part, once we do that, is match and communicate the leader style, which we'll talk about later about as far as what is effective leadership. And finally, what we say is monitor the movement. We as leaders always create a movement. Sometimes it's a developmental movement. Sometimes we can actually cause our employees to grasp based upon mismatching the style of leadership that we use. But that's the four, those are the four steps in situational leadership. Situational leadership, you know, we say assess current performance readiness, you know, that's great, but what is that? Well, it's again, you know, it, it, it's on two variables. Those two variables are ability and willingness. And then we're going to break those even down even further. So let's just look at the ability side of what I don't like to use the word the equation, but it sounds appropriate here. So let's look at the ability side of the equation is that, you know, there's three things that make up ability, knowledge, experience, and skill. And so what do we mean by knowledge? That they know how to do it. So if we kind of go back one step and I, the leader, don't know what it is, can we really expect the follower to be successful? Probably not. And so that's where it kind of goes back to, you know, the leader also being a trainer. And that's where it kind of gets into this development because the situational leadership model is really a developmental model to make someone successful for a task. So the first place we go to in assessing their current performance readiness is, hey, do they know what this is? 
The next places that we go to is experience. And experience is, have they ever done it? Do they know first and have they ever done it? So we tend to think about knowledge, experience, and skill. The word skill is a little confusing to some people when they first come into situational leadership because of this. People think skill is something that's to be done. No, skill is simply, are they doing this at a sustained, acceptable level as being evaluated by the leader? It's either a yes or a no. And what we tell our students is this, if you have to question whether they are doing it right or wrong, then it's probably a no. It's pretty simple to kind of figure out, hey, whether this person's doing that part. So that's the first part of it is the ability question, okay? So before I kind of give you kind of an over the airways, you know, visual to kind of go by, if you get those first three questions right, you have a 50% chance of making that person successful at that task. And so let me jump over to the other side. The other part is willingness. So there's two variables, ability, knowledge, experience, and skill. Now we're going to talk about willingness, confident, commitment, and motivation. This is a little bit more difficult on the leader to assess for this reason. On ability, I can see it. It's empirical. I can see, I can, I can ask you, do you know? Yes. Okay. Have you experienced it? Yes. Are you doing it? I can see it. I can see you're doing it or not doing it. But confidence, commitment, and motivation is a little bit different. You have to kind of get some inference, you know, out of this. And let me explain a little further by saying this. The first one we come to is confidence. Can I mask my insecurity with confidence? Absolutely, I can. All right. I can tell you I'm confident. I can act I'm confident. But you will figure out sometimes at you know the expense of the employee or the follower that, hey, you know, they were fooling me there. And then the other part's commitment motivation. And so what we say is that's the toughest nut to crack out of this whole thing is because we can't see it. You know, because commitment motivation is internal. Now, I could probably pick up some cues non-verbally from the person, maybe verbally because of the tone of their voice or something. But most of the time, you know, you don't really know no, right? It kind of gets its way out. So now think about this. I said it's kind of a 50-50 proposition. If we get the first part right, we're going to mostly get it right. And so this second half of it, the willingness, is a little, little bit tougher because the one thing that impacts most employees' performances is the commitment motivation aspect. Or I can appear to be confident, but it's a commitment motivation. It's like doing something that you really don't want to do, but you go ahead and do it because you just want to get it done. There's not a whole lot of commitment and motivation in it, and you're probably just doing it, you know, at probably maybe 50, 60 percent of, you know, how you could do it if you wanted to do it. So that's really uh, the you know, the answer to that question, which is the person's readiness level is really what we're talking about. You're correct. There are four readiness levels when we apply this model. One is, you know, the R1, as we say, readiness level one is a low a state of readiness for this particular task at this time. That's critical because sometimes people want to put people in a parking lot or a parking space and want to keep them there for whatever reason. But the two and the three, the next two blocks, it's a moderate level of readiness, excuse me, for that particular task. And the reason why it's moderate and there's two there is it's based upon this whole thing about being confident or insecure, being willing or unwilling to perform that task. And the final and the fourth block is pretty simple. This is where this person, in our opinion, as the leader, has reached a certain level of autonomy. And, you know, they are able, they are confident, and they're willing to do that particular task. It's almost like saying, hey, you know, you don't have to tell yourself every morning to tire your shoes. You just go out and do it. That is fascinating. And every time I talk to you, I think I've, I've been to class and I learned something. I know in a prior conversation uh, to this interview, 
You mentioned regression. It's not something employers want to see, but we all know life happens. Tasks can increase or be altered, and most of all, motivators change. How would you, as an agency head, say that utilizing situational leadership, someone should go about addressing regression in an employee? Catch it early. Regression is, is a very difficult thing for both leader and follower. In particular, leaders. It, you could call this leader's frustration because we develop a person to a point where, hey, it's like a Ronco chicken. You can set it and forget it, and you know they are consistent across the board in their performance, and we accept that. What happens is, is that, you know, over time, like you said, life happens and people tend to regress because, hey, let's face it, it could be boredom. It could be any number of factors. It could be, hey, perhaps the leader has moved on to another employee and is dividing their attention. And that employee that's really struggling is getting in the majority of the attention from the leader. So what's the first thing we do is, well, we, we kind of slack back on our performance because what we're sending a message to the leader is simple. Hey, come talk to me. You know, I, I, I need some FaceTime. I need you to check in on me. So when we look at this regression, you know, sometimes regression doesn't mean that you quit. Sometimes it means that you slow down. Sometimes it simply means that, you know, hey, we dial back our performance in an attempt to send a message to the leader, come talk to me. So what I say is catch it early because now this is the time we problem solve. So if they are still performing and maybe even exceeding your expectations, but you notice there's something different there, we're monitoring them. Okay? That's what we're really getting at. We're really going to monitor their performance and say and ask ourselves as the leader, am I seeing the same thing? Okay. Is what I'm seeing, is is it matching what I am feeling as the leader? Once we see that performance really kind of take a shift backwards, yeah, I guess you could say, or maybe maybe dialing back a little bit, what we want to do is go in and problem solve. And one of the toughest parts for any leader anywhere is this, having a clear expectation communication with our people that look to us for leadership. Now, this is where I always like to diverge away from the terms leader-follower because this is where the leader and the relationship between leader-follower really it really matters more than anything else. Let me just use a couple examples. As we're developing a person, who's the one person that we do not want to disappoint? It's the leader. Why? We want them to think of us as being the best employee. We want them to think of us in a in, in, in a good light. So that's where it kind of goes back a little bit earlier in the conversation about confidence. You know, the first time you're asked to do something from your leader in a, in, in a new task, and you may be a relatively new employee, what happens? We say, oh, yeah, absolutely. I can do it. I'm on it. Well, what, what happens is, is that, you know, they're telling you that because their willingness is high to do it, but they just lack something that's probably knowledge, maybe even experience in order to perform that task. So this is where leader relationship really matters. And this is what makes the model so effective, especially, you know, situational leadership is that we don't let that person go on to fail until we know that person is ready to take on the next challenge. And as I mentioned earlier, that could be one second or it could be one year in, in, a, in a matter of performance, depending on the complexity of the skill or the complexity of the task that's being asked to be performed. So regression can cause a lot of frustration, you know, in especially coming from the person that's attempting to develop the other person, because the first thing you say is, 
coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know, you, you, you could have done it, you should have done it, and you have done it before. That creates a little bit of, you know, it creates a lot of frustration. So that's the reason why when they start to regress, we got to stop it early. Because sometimes it's just a conversation of, hey, you know, hey, I've noticed this, tell me why. But the first thing you need to ask yourself as a leader before this conversation, am I the one that's causing this person to regress? Because what we find out is, is that because you have had this maturing relationship with this person, we really like that relationship, right? What's one of the best things about being a parent is being a parent. What's one of the best things about being an FTO is being an FTO. What's one of the best things about being a coach is being a coach is that relationship that you have. And sometimes it's very difficult for us to let go of that person because of us. So sometimes what happens is we kind of we kind of pull that person's performance back because we really like the relationship that we've developed with them, in particularly giving them answers to questions they already know. It's a huge no-no in leadership, but we do it. Why? Because we just want to be liked. That's the reason why we do it. That's where we got to do this. We got to catch it before they quit. I think we could all kind of relate to, you know, we've been doing the job and the next thing you know, the boss comes in, hangs around the desk and, hey, how we, what are we coming at? Well, let's, let's do it this way, this way, this way, this way. And so that just causes frustration. It's like, okay, if it ain't broke, boss, why are we fixing it? You know, and if it is broke, you got to tell me the reason why it's broke. And so that's a long answer on that, but it's one of the most frustrating things for leaders, you know, in order to do that. So just going to circle back and just kind of make a couple minor points about some things that we already said on there. One, check yourself. Am I the issue? When I say, am I the issue? Am I the leader, the issue? And sometimes, you know, in the end, what I guess in a long way of me explaining this is sometimes you have to go to the employee and just tell them, Hey, I'm sorry. You know, Hey, I've, I've been a little bit overbearing. You're fine. It was a me moment. It's my fault, not your fault. It's my fault. And I just appreciate the fact that, you know, one, you didn't completely quit on me. But the other thing is I appreciate, you know, the relationship that we have. So that sounds like it's relationship building, even at a new level by the the supervisor or the the leader being candid. Right. The employee. If there's no relationship there, you're probably not going to get much. You know, that's where command and control kind of, there's nothing wrong with command and control leadership. You need it. In fact, style one is a little command and control, but it's a nicer way of doing it. You know, just to kind of give some people some examples of it's a telling style of leadership. You know, it's not a yell at the employee style. Yelling's not telling. It's a telling style of leadership. It's effective because guess what? If you don't know, I've got to tell you how to do it. And so that's that's where we kind of go with that. But regression can be very, very could be a very, very emotional event for a leader and led. Uh, it sounds like uh, basically, you know, you don't neglect your garden. Well, that's an excellent point. And one of our students several years ago brought up a point. He asked me, he, he floored me. He said, Ed, you ever grown a garden? I said, of course I have. He says, no, you never have. You've watered it. You put it in the right place and allowed it to grow. So you're, you're correct. You know, that's what you do. Think about it. You've never really grown a garden. You just set up all the right things and give it all the right materials in order to grow. Same things with employees. And I think, um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about how situational leadership is very employee focused. But 
The supervisor can also work on becoming a better leader and changing their behaviors and their reactions to get a better outcome. So how can a supervisor at any level that they might be within a department or or an agency become better at situational leadership? Well, first and foremost, you got to know what sit lead is. <laughs> well, yes, <absolutely. laughs> and I know we kind of, we kind of laugh about that because you know there is there is a little bit of a misnomer out in the Commonwealth that all first line supervisors at any agency that have attended situational leadership, they haven't. And first and foremost, you know you got to become familiar with the model. The first point, and and, and, I, and I'm and I'll probably make a shameless plug for this later on, but if you're a first line supervisor. If you are a sergeant, and let me just explain something to the audience. Uh, With the Academy of Police Supervision, you know, you can be a sergeant or above and attend the Academy of Police Supervision. We've had sheriffs. We've had sitting sheriffs. We've had sitting chiefs of police. We've had captains, majors, you name it. Sometimes people get a little upset with it. They say, hey, we want to send our corporals. We just don't have the space. We don't have the facilities in order to do it. And so, you know, what we found out is, is that, you know, if there's a sergeant in the agency, and yes, I understand, you know, kind of getting your people trained up early on it. And, you know, but lots of times the sergeant makes the decision. The corporal's really a master patrol officer. And there's nothing wrong with calling your master patrol officers corporals and or vice versa, because they're all going to have leadership roles. So first and foremost, you know, we got to have, you know, you got to understand what situational leadership is in order to use situational leadership. So the other part of it is, you know, if you have attended situational leadership, you got to use it. It's like learning a foreign language. You know, I attended college in New Mexico and spent probably six weeks in Mexico at various times, you know, doing a Spanish immersion project. I can't hablo a lick now because, you know, it's, I just, you use it or lose it. And I lost it. It's the first thing is, you know, 10 APS, that's the first place because it's a total leadership course. And that's what it's intended to do. It's not a one-off event. Okay, situational leadership alone will make you more effective. But the Academy of Police Supervision, as a first-line supervisor in a law enforcement agency, is going to give you bigger benefits in the long run. And it's going to build upon the little brief sum up we've been able to to give you all here on the podcast. And Ed, I know we've talked about the model mm-hmm. and we've talked about, you know, a little how to implement situational leadership. But how are we teaching these principles to our clients who come to DOCJT for in-service? You told me there was a connection that you draw to a 1949 Gregory Peck film, 12 O'Clock High. Please elaborate. You know, for me, it's kind of, it's a it's a little emotional, and those guys have been in the class with me. Know I teach with my heart, and uh, but for years, you know, um, there there were, I didn't realize this that, that there was an actual connection between myself and one of the lead characters in the movie Twelve O'Clock High, in particular uh, Jesse Bishop. The movie Twelve O'Clock High is a, is a true story. Obviously, there's a little Hollywood that's behind it, but the overall message of the 12 o'clock high is really the honor of the 8th Air Force. They were the first boots on the ground in World War II. You know, uh, not going to give anybody a history lesson, but they were really the first people that were in active combat, if you will, in World War II. Well, one of the stories is about this heroic flight of this uh, young aviator. I think he was 21, 22 years old uh, when he was flying this plane. But 
uh, and I encourage everybody to go to the Middle of Honor website and look up Red Morgan. But uh, but his connection there every day, because uh, of course I attend the New Mexico Military Institute, is that every day I'd walk past the statue that honored the 8th Air Force. And I did not realize that the statue was to honor Jesse Bishop, the Medal of Honor recipient who graduated from my college. And so it was real interesting that the year he died, we honored him with a parade. And who would know, I'm not going to say how many years later, but uh, how many years later that in a conversation with my my college advisor, she told me, she says, you know who that is, don't you? I go, no, ma'am. She goes, uh, that man there is the Jesse Bishop because his name is Red Morgan. To me, you know, I always like to make that connection. And it's always nice to go home, so to speak, and uh, the Institute will always be home to me. It's funny how things happen like that. You know, it's, it's nice when connections can be made that you don't expect. So how do we utilize this movie to teach our, our in-service people about situational leadership? Yeah, you know, Outside of the story of it, uh, you know, of, of 12 o'clock high, you know, the greatest way to learn something is through application. I think sometimes we tend to forget that in the in-service world, especially in leadership, because to be an effective leader, you have to have three things. You have to have technical skills, human skills, and conceptual skills. Leadership effectiveness really comes down to human skills. How do we communicate with each other internally and externally from our organization? What the movie 12 o'clock high does, it takes the principles of situational leadership, this model, the films, everything else, and really you get to see it in in, in a grand scale. With the best way to describe how we use 12 o'clock high in this model as far as a case study, it's just like a tabletop exercise. That's really what it is. It's a tabletop exercise in the application of situational leadership and its principles. That's what, you know, makes the makes this course so much more effective than other courses. If I tell people, hey, you can go take situational leadership, you'll walk away feeling empowered and, you know, have a few few more words, you know, to put in your leadership arsenal and your, um, you know, they've been speaking with people. But until you see the application portion of it, especially the way that is designed. So you have to make individual decisions and then you have to make a group decision. And then in the end, there's the overall decision that the developers in situational leadership say, hey, this is the best probability based upon our experience in teaching this. And so are there any right answers? There are better answers. But what they're really saying is, is that it's the conversations of leadership that are at that table among leaders about, hey, what is this? What is the readiness level of a nine eighteenth in this, you know, in, in this part of in this part of the movie? You know, what is Harvey Stovall's really overall leadership style that he is really using? Those are the conversations that help you learn situational leadership, imprint situational leadership, and most importantly, the application of situational leadership. This is one of the few leadership courses I have ever attended. That at the end of the day, I could immediately go out and be a better person of influence. That's what makes situational leadership, and especially with the case study 12 o'clock high, so effective for any leader anywhere. And that's the direct, you know, correlation between, you know, effectiveness and the application in law enforcement. Because we are such a skill-based occupation that you could take the human and conceptual elements of this course and immediately apply them. That's what makes it so effective. It sounds like it can be usable not only in your work, but also in life. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, it was so funny, and we were kind of getting together on this, and we used the example about teaching our children how to brush teeth. Exactly. You know, 
It's like this. They know how to brush their teeth. They brushed their teeth probably a thousand times at this point. Now, are they performing to our acceptable level of performance? That's a yes or no answer, right? And so it's a no at my house. You know, and it's just two. Yeah. Well, and remember we were talking about the frustration. Think about the frustration between leader and led and parent and child. It's the same thing. And I tell people this all the time that the application of this is outside of that. Well, what is the real issue of brushing teeth with our children? Currently, you know what it is. It's confidence, commitment, motivation, the things we cannot see that causes the most frustration in the leader. You know, though, okay, I'm confident brushing my teeth, Dad, but I don't really want to do it. It's like cleaning the room, you know. And so if you look at it, see, there are real applications to it. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, situational leadership takes the place of good parenting. I'm not saying that. But it, like with everything else in life, why not have other tools that you can use to make, you know, people better? I'm going to have to see if they can let me sit in on one of your classes, Ed. Well, they used to have a class called Situational Parenting. All right. So just to back it up, uh, remind us again, who can take situational leadership at DOCJT? Well, we um, we have a couple, couple options. Our tele-managers and supervisors, obviously, we did a standalone class uh, for them a couple years ago. Now, I'll have to say a couple years ago, uh, we've, you know, it's not that the interest isn't there. It's just that, you know, we, we purchased the materials in bulk. We got to have that almost two years out in order to, to do it. So there's an open class. Can't say 100% of the time. Most of the time, we, we strictly, we restrict that to people who are in leadership roles. So it has to be somebody for peace officers, a sergeant and above in their organization. I know some organizations don't have sergeants. They have corporals. They go from corporal to lieutenant. So that corporal would be eligible, you know, upon, you know, discussions with, you know, with the with the leadership section supervisor. But it is the first week of the Academy of Police Supervision. Uh, and, the, of course, what we refer to as a sergeant's academy, but it's actually more than a sergeant's academy. That's through us. Now, there are, you know, some other options, obviously, through the Center for Leadership Studies in Cary, North Carolina, that, you know, you can pursue uh, down there, you know, uh, through them. All right. So in closing, can you give our listeners a few ways that leaders at all levels can begin using situational leadership today at their agency, just taking from what they've they've heard from you during this podcast? You know me, but I start off with the original premise, you know, and you've heard me say this a, a lot of times, you know, clearly the you and others. First place you have to start. Are you a good person? That's the first place to start, you know. If you're struggling to come up with a yes or no answer on that one, I think you probably know the answer, you know. Right, that doesn't look too good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But keep in mind, no one's perfect, and no one has all the answers. And so I always tell people, be curious, okay? And you say, what does this have to do with situational leadership? Everything. you got to be curious. You know, that leads people to, uh, to more answers. And be a student of something. You know, being a student and be a student of something, whatever interests you. Okay, it could be situational leadership. It could be anything. Whatever it is, be curious. And I always go back to something that a general officer that I worked for once time uh, remarked to me, uh, General Bill Barron. He told me, he says, Ed, you know, I'm a 70-year-old. I'm a 70-year-old man. However, I have the mind of a 10,000-year-old warrior and thinker. And yeah, and that did that. He said, you know, never stop learning. He said, you know, never stop learning. He told me, he says, Ed, study a person of interest to you, study an event. And, you know, one of my personal favorites, and this is the place I tell a lot of people to start. For me, it's Coach John Wooden. Why John Wooden? Well, he's simple. Uh, The things that he talks about are simple in nature. As I always like to say, 
you know, it, there's no multisyllabic words in what Coach John Wooten said. He was a gifted man, a treasure to everybody who came around him. But John Wooten just really kept leadership and life very, very simple. His pyramid of success is a not a formula, but it's a good place to start. You could Google it. It's open source stuff. So start with, uh, I always say, but start with John Wooten is a great starting point. As it pertains specifically to SITLEAD, um, if you've not attended, you know, APS and you're eligible, you know, that's why I always tell everybody. I don't know why people, you know, dodge their own development, but a lot of people try to dodge it. I know it's three weeks. You know, nobody wants to be away for three weeks. You know, I, I get that. But, you know, it's worth the effort. You know, I'll just let the uh, course itself sp- uh, speak for itself. But, you know, again, you know, if you've been through SITLEAD and 12 o'clock high, use it. It simply works, you know. It simply works. And, you know, finally, learning's not a one-off event. You know, being a lifelong learner, you know, always makes you want to learn more. So what's just not, you know, say, hey, I attended it, and it's like, you know, uh, and I've forgotten it. And you know, that's, you know, that's the greatest tragedy, you know. When, when we think we know right. it all, you know, we, that's when we know we know the least. So, I mean, this all sounds like uh, really powerful information that people can take and apply not only to their agency, but also to their, potentially their life outside of work. Thank you, Ed, for taking the time to talk to our audience. We really liked having you on the show and hopefully we'll get you back on here. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for listening. More information about today's topic can be found in this episode's show notes. Remember, you can find us on DOCJT's website under the training tab on Apple Podcast. And I am happy to announce we are now on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Critley King-Smith, and you have been listening to the Bluegrass Beat. We hope you join us again. We strive to make this podcast entertaining and informative. If you would like to reach us with a comment or suggestion, contact us via the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the Bluegrass Beat wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a Team Kentucky and Department of Criminal Justice Training production.